I wish I could be there with you all. And I will be there the second Sabbath of uh, November, so be sure and come with the potluck for that day. If you're a visitor, welcome, and we're glad you're here. And I'm sorry I'm not there to meet you in person. Our class uh, lesson today, we're doing lesson five in the quarterly uh, art on death, dying, and the future hope. And the title is Resurrection Before the Cross. And can you recall any resurrections that happened before Jesus? Several. Yes. 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 <clears throat> no. Okay. Can you name any? Lazarus. Lazarus. Jairus' daughter. Before. The child. Yep. before Jesus. Uh, before not not before Jesus' life, but before his his resurrection. Before his resurrection. Yeah. So uh, the Old Testament Moses, uh, the son of the Phoenician woman, the widow of Zarephath, uh, who who gave uh, Elijah a place to stay, the son of the Shunammite woman, um, uh, who uh, helped Elisha. The uh, son of the widow of Nain, the Jairus' daughter, Lazarus. All these were listed in our quarterly for this week. But there was one more that I remembered. Do you remember the, the dead body that was thrown in the cave and touched the bones of Elisha? Oh, yeah. Second yeah. Kings 13.21. You can read about that. And that, that man came back to life. You can imagine what that would have been like. The, the soldiers were running from an enemy and they couldn't carry their 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 dead comrade anymore because he was too heavy. So they threw him in the cave and then he touched Elisha's bones and came back to life. And, and then they looked back and saw the dead man running after him. They probably ran a little faster, don't you think? <laughs> so the lesson also points out uh, that the Bible is consistent in its teaching that the dead don't know anything after death. And they, and they point out that it's like a sleep and it's a period of unconsciousness and... Uh, in fact, they point out that the Bible has no record of anybody that was resurrected coming back and giving reports of what they experienced while they were dead. Now, this lack of a report is not the same thing as reporting that they didn't know anything. However, it's consistent with the idea that death is like a sleep. And in fact, it would be quite strange had somebody died, gone to heaven, had these uh, celebrating uh, paradise with joyful, blissful experiences, it would be very strange for them to come back and not report on that. So, the, so while the lack of report is not the same thing as a report of knowing nothing, it, uh, it's consistent with our understanding of death being asleep. It's interesting also that the only place we find reports about consciousness after death is outside the Bible. Not in the scriptures. We don't find that. And it's very similar to Eastern meditation practices. Uh, several years ago, I went to a, uh, a medical uh, CME event, continuing medical education event, with a famous Harvard psychiatrist or physician, excuse me, physician, who was teaching the audience on the medical benefits of Eastern meditation practices. And at the event, he had representatives of every major world religion and several minor world religions. And they all got up and talked about how this method of meditation was active and used in their particular religion. When it came to the Q&A time, I went to the microphone and I asked, I have a question for the Catholic priest and the Protestant pastor and the Jewish rabbi. I'd like to know specifically from those three uh, whose religions are based on scripture, while you've described this form of meditation being practiced today in your religion, is this form of meditation in scripture? And all three of them admitted it was not. And I find that quite interesting that we have a form of meditation that is infecting all of the religions of the world, but the only place you don't find it is in Scripture. And in fact, the Scripture form of meditation is quite different than the Eastern form. It has different consequence. And we have a, a meditation guide. You can get a free one in the, the lobby there if you're there today. You can read it online. And it goes through the differences in methodology, philosophy, and impact on our brain between the biblical form of meditation and the Eastern form. Sunday's lesson asks us to read Jude 9. And the, uh, the verse is, but even the archangel Michael, when he was disputing with the devil about the body of Moses, did not dare to bring a slanderous accusation against him, but said, the Lord rebuke you. What do you think of when you read this text? Any, any lessons come to mind? Yeah, whenever Christ was tempted in the wilderness, 
he, he told Satan that the word of God rebuke him. Okay, so, yes, so he does not enter into debate, debate with the devil. No. Who's the accuser? Satan. Satan is the accuser. That's right. Remember that. God is not the accuser. God is not the one who is bringing charges against us or keeping a checklist of misdeeds to bring into a courtroom one day to accuse us with. The devil is the one who does that, not the Lord. Who is Michael? Jesus. You know, there are three main views of who Michael is in in. Christian thought or religious thought, the Jehovah's Witness take the position that Michael is Jesus in his pre-incarnate form before he was born in Bethlehem. However, they take the position that Jesus was a created being and not fully God. The Seventh-day Adventist Church takes the position that Michael was Jesus in his pre-incarnate form before being born in Bethlehem, but that Jesus is fully God pre-existent with life original, unborrowed, underived from another, that Jesus was never an angel in substance, but manifested in the form of an angel prior to his incarnation as a human. That's the SDA position. And the most of the rest of the Christian world takes the position that Michael is not Jesus at all, but an archangel uh, similar or like Gabriel. In my view, we can discount the Jehovah's Witness uh, perspective right out of the gate because if Jesus is not fully God, then the plan of salvation, as I understand it, could not have been accomplished by Jesus. The truth about God could not be revealed by one who is not God. In fact, if Jesus is not fully God, then we do not learn that God is love a being willing to sacrifice himself for others. But instead, if Jesus is not God, we learn that God is selfish and willing to sacrifice others to protect himself. And so the Jehovah's Witness view on this is exactly the opposite of the truth and really undermines the character of God because Jesus is willing, God is willing to sacrifice Jesus in order to protect his own interest. But when we understand that Jesus is fully God, then we understand the truth about God's character of love having been revealed. And we understand that God is safe with the power because he would never use the power to stop us, even us, from hurting him. Monday's lesson points us to the resurrection of two Old Testament resurrections. Let's read about one of them. It's in 2 Kings 4, 8 through 37. It's going to be a fun story, and I think there's a lot for us to learn from it. But this is um, 2 Kings 4, starting verse 8. One day Elisha went to Shunem. And a well-to-do woman was there who urged him to stay for a meal. So whenever he came by, he stopped there to eat. She said to her husband, I know this man who often comes our way as a holy man of God. Let's make a small room on the roof and put, a bed in, uh, uh, put in it a bed and a table and a chair and a lamp for him. Then he can stay there whenever he comes to us. One day when Elisha came, he went up to the room to lay down there. He said to his servant Gehazi, uh, call the Shunammite. So he called her, and she stood before him. Elisha said, Tell her, you have gone to all this trouble for us. Now what can be done for you? Can we speak on your behalf to the king or the commander of the army? She replied, I have a home among my people. What can be done for her? Elisha asked. Gehazi said, Well, she has no son, and her husband is old. Then Elisha said, Call her. So he called her, and she stood in the doorway. About this time next year, Elisha said, you will hold a son in your arms. No, my lord, she objected. Don't, dis don't mislead your servant, O man of God. But the woman became pregnant, and the next year, about the same time, she gave birth to a son, just as Elisha had told her. The child grew, and one day he went out to his father, who was with, with the reapers. My head, my head, he said to his father. His father told the servant, carry him to his mother. After the servant had lifted him up and carried him to his mother, the boy sat on her lap until noon, and then he died. She went up and laid him on the bed of the man of God, then shut the door and went out. She called her husband and said, Please send me one of the servants and a donkey so I can go to the man of God quickly and return. Why go to him today? He asked. He's, it's not a new moon or the Sabbath. It's all right, she said. She saddled the donkey and said to her servant, Lead on. Don't slow down for me unless I tell you. 
So she set out and came to the man of God at Mount Carmel. When he saw her in the distance, the man of God said to the servant, Gehazi, Look, there's the Shunammite. Run to meet her and ask, Are you all right? Is your husband all right? Is your child all right? Everything, is it all right? And she said, Everything's all right. When, when she reached the man of God at the mountain, she took hold of his feet. Gehazi came over and pushed her away, but the man of God said, Leave her alone. She's in bitter distress. But the Lord has hidden it from me and has not told me why. Did I ask for a son, my Lord? Didn't I tell you, don't raise my hopes? Elisha said to Gehazi, Tuck your coat in your belt. Take my staff in your hand and run. If you meet anyone, do not greet him. And if anyone greets you, do not answer. Lay my staff on the boy's face. But the child's mother said, As surely as the Lord lives, and as I live, I will not leave you. So he got up and followed her. Gehazi went on ahead and laid the staff on the boy's face, but there was no sound or response. So Gehazi went back to meet Elisha and told him, The boy has not awakened. When Elisha reached the house... There was a boy there where there was the boy lying dead on the couch. He went in, shut the door on the two of them, and prayed to the Lord. Then he got on the bed and laid on top of the boy, mouth to mouth, eyes to eyes, hands to hands. As he reached as he stretched himself upon him, the boy's body grew warm. Elisha turned away and walked back and forth in the room and then got on the bed and stretched out upon him once more. The boy sneezed seven times opened his, and opened his eyes. Elisha summoned Gehazi and said, Call the Shunammite. And he did. And she came and said, and he said, Take your son. She came in, fell at his feet, and bowed to the ground. Then she took her son and went out. What do you think of the story? <laughs> Where did you read that from? Amazing. That's uh, Second Kings four eight through thirty seven. Second Kings four eight through thirty seven. Uh, are you familiar with that story? Did you remember all the details? No. Yeah. Isn't it interesting? I believe my personal belief this story is real. It's historical. That woman really lived. She had a child. The child died. Uh, there was a real prophet named Elisha used by God to act as he did, and the power of God raised the boy from the dead. But I think there's more than, than just the evidence of the, the historic resurrection, historical resurrection. Uh, as we have described many times in many places, the Bible not only records real historical people who really lived and did real things, but many of these stories are chosen and selected because they serve as object lessons to larger realities. We've described before how there were seven miracle births in the Old Testament. This was one of those seven miracle births. And then how each of those miracle births is an object lesson for Christ. These miracle births were not virgin births, like Jesus was a virgin birth. These were women who had infertility problems and couldn't get pregnant in the normal way. And God miraculously healed their infertility, and they got pregnant with their husband in the normal way. And each one of the boys born from these miracle births are object lessons for Christ. If you remember, Sarah had Isaac. Isaac was the promised child who would be sacrificed, object lesson for Christ. Rebecca had Jacob. Jacob wrestles with God, overcomes his own weakness, and becomes Israel, one who with God overcomes, the father of a nation built on 12 sons. Jesus wrestled with temptation, overcame to be the cornerstone of the church built on the 12 apostles. Rachel had Joseph, who was sold into slavery, but through faithfulness to God becomes a ruler to save the people. Jesus humbled himself to be a servant, and through his faithfulness to his father overcomes and exalted to the ruler as to ruler to save us from sin. Manoah's wife had Samson, blessed with strength to deliver Israel from bondage of oppressors and to rule over them. Jesus has strength to deliver us from the bondage of sin and rule the universe. Hannah had Samuel, who became high priest, and Jesus is our high priest. The Shunammite woman had a child who died and rose from the dead, and Jesus died and rose from the dead. And the last is Elizabeth, who had John the Baptist, who was the greatest spokesperson for God, until Jesus, who was ultimately the greatest spokesperson for God. So, you see, here are seven real stories of real people who re experience real-life events, and every one of them has a deeper meaning to give us lessons 
about the larger controversy in Jesus. So do you all see the, the, how that works? <coughs> so the first object lesson in the story of the Shunammite and her son is that, of course, he dies and rises again, an object lesson for the Messiah. But Elisha is a type of Christ, a spokesperson, a representative. Uh, some of the miracles that Elisha did and performed serve as object lessons and a forerunner for Christ. For instance, Elisha directed a widow woman to fill jars of oil and sell the oil to pay the debt of their deceased father and prevent her sons from being taken into slavery. Are you familiar with that story? That's 2 Kings 4, 1 through 7. This is an object lesson. It's, I think it's a real story, but it's an object lesson. Can you think through the objects? What does oil represent? Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, right. Uh, the, the boy's deceased father had a debt they couldn't pay. Do we have a deceased father that, that puts us in a debt we can't pay? Who's our deceased father Adam. that put us in debt? Adam. Adam put all humanity into a, a sin debt that we can't, we can't resolve on our own. Okay? And, and so the, the Holy Spirit is poured out to bring to us the, the remedy that Christ procured to free us from the debt that we would have, uh, that we don't have from our own father. So this is an object lesson, how these things work. Now here's another one. Miracle of the son of the Shunammite woman represents Jesus and his resurrection. We talked about that. Miraculously it makes poisonous food edible and feeds the faithful prophets. This is 2 Kings 4.38. So he, there's poisonous food. He miraculously makes the food edible and he feeds the prophets. Can you think of an object lesson? Jesus is represent represent the the Jesus is represented as the bread of life. I told you I'm the bread that's come down from heaven. He became sin though he knew no sin, purges the poison of sin from his humanity, and thus we partake of Christ and we are healed from our sinfulness. Feeds a hundred men with twenty loaves, multiplying the food. And this is an object lesson of Jesus who feels, feeds the masses on two occasions with bread and fish. But again, it also represents Jesus, the bread of life, who feeds us the, the word of truth. Uh, he heals Naaman of leprosy. Jesus heals many lepers, and leprosy itself is a metaphor from sin that we are being healed from through Jesus. He makes an axe head float. <coughs> Jesus has power over the forces of nature, calms the storms, walks on water, warns Israel of, of the enemy's plans. Jesus reveals the plans of, of our enemy Satan and his forces in the various revelations and things that he's given us. Angel armies protect him from the enemies, and he blinds the enemies, leading them uh, into the hands of the king and instructs the enemies to be fed and given water and then sets them free. And the scriptures go on to say these former enemies never attack Israel again. You all familiar with that story? Yes. Mm -hmm. Do you see the object lesson? Jesus has his angel armies protecting us and he desires to take the, the blind enemies, blind men leading the blind in this world. His goal is to open their eyes so they experience the bread and water of life, that is Jesus, so that they are turned from enemies of God into friends. That's the goal. Do you see these beautiful object lessons? Yes. And Elisha was a type of Christ. But the boy was a type of Christ. We already described it. He was a miracle birth. He died. He rose again. Elisha is a type of Christ. Do you find it confusing then in the story as Elisha goes in as a type of Christ and raises the boy who was a type of Christ? Is that confusing? Yes. So consider the Old Testament. In many of this object lessons, in the same setting... Multiple individuals represent Christ in his various roles because no one individual can actually represent all the different things Christ does. So in the Old Testament sanctuary, Moses was a representative of Jesus in his pre-incarnate state. Moses would go in and talk to God face to face and, from, and then leave God's presence and came out and built the sanctuary. Jesus, in his pre-incarnate state, talked to God face to face and left heaven and came and built the sanctuary. It says in Zechariah 6, 12, and 13, Here is the man whose name is the branch, capital B, and he will branch out from his place and build the temple of the Lord. 
It is he who will build the temple of the Lord, and he will be clothed with majesty and will sit and rule in his throne, and he will be a priest on his throne, and there will be harmony between the two. This is talking about Jesus, who is the chief cornerstone, and, and we are living stones built together in a house for the Lord. So Jesus left. So Moses talked to God face to face and built the earthly sanctuary. Jesus talked to God face to face and came and became the living cornerstone, building the sanctuary that is built out of the living stones, you and me. The, but in the Old Testament sanctuary, the lamb represented Jesus in addition to Moses. And the lamb represented Jesus during his 33 years on earth when he was sacrificed. But Aaron also represented Jesus as our high priest. And he represents Jesus after his resurrection in his heavenly role as our high priest. So we see in the same setting, three different elements, Moses, the lamb, and Aaron, all representing Jesus. So back to the question of the object lesson in the story, Elisha and the boy both representing Jesus. Question. And Elisha goes in and lays on the boy, mouth to mouth, hand to hand, um, eyes to eyes. It's kind of very strange, isn't it? Very. <laughs> but if you think about both representing Jesus, does this text help you? This is John chapter 10, verse 17 and 18. Does this help you see the, the object lesson in the story? This is Jesus speaking. The Father loves me because I am willing to give up my life in order that I may receive it back again. No one takes my life away from me. I give it up of my own free will. I have the right to give it up, and I have the right to take it back. This is what the Father has commanded me to do. So, who gave up his life? Jesus. Who takes his life back? Jesus. So we see that in the metaphor, both representing Jesus, is Jesus sacrificing his life and Jesus taking his life back. Question? But what about this business of the, the mouth-to-mouth, eyes-to-eyes, and hands-to-hand? How would you explain that? What's the object lesson there? I'm here. I'm here rumbling. I had a quick question. Pardon? Can you, can you hear? There's one more. So, what, are you asking me what the question is? No, no. One more miracle of Elijah when his bones were touched by a dead body. Yeah, yeah. Well, so, so yeah, we talked. Yes, that's a good one. That's another good one. Yes, thank you for that. So what do you think this uh, object lesson here is? Mouth to mouth, eyes to eyes, hands to hands. I'll tell you my thoughts on it. This text may help. 1 Thessalonians 5, 23 and 24. See, if this text, if you connect this, this text to the mouth to mouth, eyes to eyes, hands to hands. May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who calls you is faithful and he will do it. Does that help you with that? Yes. yes. Mouth, eyes, hands. Total commitment. Jesus is our substitute, our, the second Adam. He had to purify humanity from sin completely. In spirit, soul, and body, all had to be cleansed. Spirit, the Greek word for spirit is pneuma which mean we get pneumonia from. It means breath or breath of life. And so this would be represented by the mouth. If you remember, Jesus breathed on his disciples and they received the Holy Spirit. So the breath of life, mouth to mouth, the spirit is being cleansed. The soul uh, is the eyes. The Greek for soul is psyche, from where we get psychiatry and psychology, and it symbolizes our thinking. The eyes in, in the Bible represent where we have wisdom and discernment and enlightenment and where we do our thinking. We still often say today that the eyes are the windows to the soul. Soul, that's right, yeah. And then the body uh, would represent the hands. This is the, the body is, is what we move around and interact with the world with and work with, and so the hands represent the body. And so this object lesson here is that Christ is going to come, and he is going to cleanse humanity from sin in spirit, in soul, and body. I thought that was pretty neat. And I think if you look at the Old Testament stories, you will find many of them have deep meaning if we were to connect some of these pieces together. What about the boy sneezing seven times? 
Do you think that's interesting? I mean, it's a detail. Right in the script. Sneeze seven times. Seven's God's perfect number. Pardon? Seven is God's perfect number. Okay, so seven is the number of perfection or completion. This boy is dead. He represents Jesus. Jesus, uh, Elisha, which represents Jesus, uh, demonstrates that he is cleansing us in body, soul, and spirit. And then the boy, as he is rising from the dead, sneezes seven times. Seven is the number of completion. Sneezing <laughs> is part of breathing. So, and, and when you sneeze, what is a sneeze doing? Literally, when you sneeze, why do you sneeze? Clearing out the bad stuff. You're getting rid of the bad stuff. <laughs> Think it. That's what a sneeze is. Getting rid of the bad stuff. Seven times demonstrating that Jesus purged all the infection of sin and the boy lives again. Wow. Isn't that cool? Yeah. Yes. Or who thinks of stuff like this? Pardon? Who thinks of stuff like this? I mean, I would have never Tim. God, God, God inspired the writers to put these details in, I think, not just for historical purposes, but again, there's these deep object lessons there that as we study the larger plan of salvation is being revealed in various ways to us. God is all about, I mean, God, an infinite God, I, I don't find it uh, uh, difficult at all. If you think about the lives, how many millions of people lived in, uh, prior to the time of Jesus, yet we have very few lives. So it's, it's kind of like one of those mosaic pictures where you see all these different individual faces, but they put them together in a way that they make a different picture. Have you seen that? Okay, all these stories are there, and they're real people doing real stuff, but the Holy Spirit can select the lives that go into the recorded record in a way that it also can tell a larger narrative than just the story. So a Tuesday's lesson, first paragraph in the lesson says, the Bible says that Jesus went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. Indeed, all the Gospels are full are full of accounts of Jesus ministering to many needy and hurting souls, which is why later many Jews came to believe that Jesus was the promised Messiah. Is there any reason beyond the benefit of physical healing that Jesus spent so much time healing and not preaching? When people are sick, it's hard for them to think of anything else besides being well. So he, after he healed them, then they could accept his gospel. So, okay, exactly right, yeah. So if people are in pain or hurting or sick, it draws their attention away to, to the eternal, to the immediate physical needs, that's true. So for those individuals, the, the healing opened them up uh, and opened their minds up to be able to hear the gospel, that's true. Is there any reason beyond that? It's a metaphor for This was just a means to reach individuals who were sick to help them come to the gospel. That was the only reason for the, for the healing? No, it's a metaphor too. It's what he wants to do for us spiritually. Okay, and why is uh, why is this such a good metaphor to demonstrate he wants to heal our souls or heal our hearts and minds? Uh, the physical healing symbolizes the spiritual healing. Why is it such a good metaphor? It's based on design law. There you go. It's based on design law. You cannot heal someone by declaration or proclamation. You actually have to do something to them, and you have to set them back in harmony with the laws of health. You can't have health while violating the laws of health. So the plan of salvation is the plan of healing. That's what the word actually means. So when you salvage something, you're taking something that's broken and restoring it to good function. That's what you do when you salvage something. And the, the word save means to heal, not, not to forgive. Uh, so the plan of salvation is the plan of healing, not the plan of legal adjustment. We do not, think this through with me now, we do not, heal people from sickness or disease by adjusting what is recorded in the medical record. If you were sick in the emergency room, you don't get well by them simply making notes in a record book. And this is the problem with much of Christianity because much of Christianity teaches that the plan of salvation is making adjustments in record books. But that doesn't actually have any benefit. <laughs> However, if we keep with our medical analogy, if you go to the emergency room and they intervene in you physically to give you a remedy, the medical records will appropriately record that. 
but the medical records are not being adjusted to fix you. You're being fixed and the records are simply recording the fact that you're being fixed or healed. And that's how the heavenly records get adjusted. Heavenly records only get adjusted if your heart and mind get adjusted to the work of the Holy Spirit. We do not heal people from disease by legal declaration that they are well when they are still sick. And that's part of much of the common penal substitution model of of salvation. They will say it explicitly. We've read it in our quarterly where they will claim that salvation justification is when God declares you to be righteous even though you're not. That's like a doctor declaring you to be cancer-free even though you're not. I don't think you'd be happy with that. And that's part of the problem with the legal approach. We do not heal somebody from disease by a judicial ruling. We do not heal someone from disease by finding someone else who never had the disease and recording their healthy status in the record of the sick one. That's another common idea taught in Christianity. It, it just doesn't work. We do not heal someone from disease by having the doctor's son plead with the doctor to diagnose the sick person as healthy even though the sick person's sick. And that's a common one as well. We have the, the Heavenly Father's son pleading to the Father to find them worthy of heaven even though they're still in rebellious state. No, we heal someone from disease by removing any toxins, pathogens, or brokenness and restoring the person to harmony with God and God's laws of health. God's plan of salvation is to restore his law that life is built upon into humanity. That's why the new covenant is I write my law in your hearts and minds. I restore you to the principles upon which my kingdom operates, truth, love, and freedom. Every wound, injury, sickness, and health problem is caused by some break from the design laws upon which God created life and health to operate. Health and wellness are only experienced when we live in harmony with the, God, the principles of God. And this is why physicians actually don't cause healing. Physicians help put patients back in harmony with God's laws and God's presence that bring the healing. That's what physicians do. When a physician sets a bone, the physician doesn't heal the bone. The physician will align the, the broken pieces together, but it's the actual progenitor cells in the body that are taking the nutrients or the energy that God put into the food and transforming them through the genetic coding that God put into the body to build the new bone that actually heals. It's, it's the power of God that's doing the healing, not the physician. The physician is aligning or working with the power of God that God has put within nature and the universe. The lesson points out that when Jesus raised the, the son of the widow of Nain, he did so without her asking for help. Whereas the Phoenician widow and the Shunammite woman both asked for help from Elijah and Elisha. What do you make of this difference? Remember, Jesus sees the, the funeral procession, the widow of Nain, her son has died, and he just raises her, and the, she raises the boy, and she never asked for it. What do you, what do you make of the difference here? Any, any significance to you all? How are we described in Scripture? Are we described as being dead in trespass and sin? And did Jesus wait for us to ask for help? No. 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 Or see the Lamb of God slain from the foundation of the world? Yes. Why, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. I think the object lesson is that, that Christ did not wait for us to ask for help, but he immediately leapt into action because we needed help. I think that's what good parents do. Do parents wait for their children to ask? Oh, my, my child is doing something quite destructive and harmful. I won't help them unless they ask me. <laughs> or in fact, do loving parents 
are they oftentimes the most proactive when they see their children in danger and the children are unaware of the danger? Yes. That's when they're most proactive, yeah. Uh, Wednesday's lesson points us to the resurrection of Jairus's daughter. And I love this story because it gives powerful details that help us understand some of the issues in the first death and how God sees it. If you remember the story, there, uh, the Jairus came and asked uh, Jesus to come see his daughter who was sick, and then the words came that the daughter had died and so forth. And, and uh, G- Jesus goes, and the little girl was, was dead, uh, and uh, by their understanding of death, because the mourners have arrived and they're and they're all mourning and wailing and so forth. And Jesus comes to the to the scene and he tells them that the girl is not dead but asleep. And they, and Scripture says, they laughed at him. What does it tell you that they laughed at him? They didn't believe him. They didn't believe him. They didn't believe him. Why didn't they believe him? They didn't understand what he was saying. They had a different opinion of what death was. So they understood the girl was not in a physiological sleep. Mm-hmm. This is a great text. Yeah. They, they, the mourners, were clear from the human perspective this girl was not simply having a nap. <laughs> she had ceased to breathe. Her heart ceased to pump. Uh, she was dead to their standing. But Jesus said she's asleep. And so they laughed at him. But why didn't Jesus say, it's okay that the girl's dead? Why didn't he say, it's okay that the girl's dead? Don't worry. I'm here and I'm going to raise her. Why didn't he say that? Why did he say she was asleep? Because I don't think Jesus did that accidentally, slip of the tongue. To help them understand that that death is not permanent. Was he trying to trick them? No. no. <clears throat> or was he doing what he always does, being the light of the world, trying to enlighten them? Did they receive the light? No. No, they didn't. They laughed at him. They ridiculed him. He's shedding light, and they find it not worthy of consideration. How often does this happen? Do you, if you had this happen in your own life, you're trying to share some truth with somebody, and they ridicule, they laugh, they don't consider it. They discount it. Do we have insight today as how a person can die, what we call death, but God calls it asleep? Do we have insight into how that could be? Yeah, we, we talked about it last week, so we won't go into it in detail, but the analogy of a computer. A computer runs out of power, and it goes into sleep mode. It's not destroyed. It's just not operational until you put the power back. And so this is a very good analogy of human beings who go into sleep mode. And I think God wants us to understand that what we call death, and think of the spiritual implications of this for a minute. What we call death, God calls asleep. So when God said, think of the implications now. Can we make, do you feel like we can make a firm case based on how, and the the Thursday's lesson is about Lazarus. Same thing. Jesus said to the disciples, Lazarus is asleep. I'm going to wake him up. Can we make a firm case that that, uh, God views what we call death as asleep? Yes Yes. Yes or no? Yes. Yes. Okay. Then in Eden, when God said, in the day you eat of the tree, you will surely die. Was he talking about what Lazarus and this and this girl experienced? Or was he talking about something else? Something else. Something else. Something else. Yes, he was not talking. So well, then how do we explain this first death experience? That's not the wages of sin. The wages of sin death is something else. This is quite important to reading your scripture to make this distinction. Many people will look at the Old Testament. Do we have stories in the Old Testament where God used power to put people in in this sleep death, first death? Do we have stories where the Bible describes that? But that is not what God calls death. God calls it a sleep. So we can say God put people to sleep, but we can't say God killed people. This is a profound truth, folks. Because people hold the penal view. We'll use these Old Testament stories of Sodom, Gomorrah, 
and other places to make the argument that God kills. And they will use it to justify the judgment in the end. They will use it to justify what God will do to the wicked in the end, that God will have to kill them. But if you actually understand that God does not call this first death, death, he calls it a sleep. Then what he said to Adam was not, in the day you eat you will sleep, in the day you eat you will die. So how do we explain the first death? Why is there a first death? What is that coming from? It's not coming from sin. It's, a, it's because sin's in the world that there is a first death, but it's not the wages of sin. The wages of sin is second death, right? Yes. Yeah. Okay, the death that, that from which there's no resurrection. The eternal death. That's the wages of sin. So this first death, is it wouldn't happen if there was no sin, but it's actually not the wages of sin. So what's it from? Why is it here? God's grace. There you go. Who said that? Stephanie. That's exactly right. It's God's grace. In other words, it's an artificial state of being. It's not natural to God's creation, but it also isn't the full consequence or result of sin. God has allowed for this artificial state to limit the wicked and their influence in the world and to give time for the plan of salvation to be brought. Does that make sense to everyone? Yes. 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 It does now. It does now. Okay. <laughs> Any questions about that? <clears throat> so why did God? Why did Jesus wait four days to wake Lazarus? He waited four days. Anybody know why he waited four days? Wasn't it their custom to think that? They might be just um, in some kind of a, a bad coma or something for a certain amount of time. And after that, they were truly dead. Right. So there was this superstitious belief that when someone died, this sleep death died, that their spirit hovered around the body for three days and then launched off into heaven or wherever it goes. This is a, a superstitious belief. Jesus understood they had this belief. And therefore, he waited four days past the three-day idea to meet them. And it's really it's a powerful story because it lets you know how God will step down and meet people where they are. Clearly, this is not God's reality. Spirits don't circle around body for three days. But he knew that they thought that. So he met them where they were and, and, and acted in a way that would help them understand that this resurrection was really a resurrection from the dead to demythify any of the superstitions that they might hold. Does that make sense? Yes. And uh, there's a very powerful little sentence in this story that I really think is profound uh, when you're talking about Jesus resurrecting Lazarus from the dead. Something Martha said to Jesus when he told her to ro- when I told him to roll away the stone. You know what she said? Yeah, he stinks. Okay, what's she what's she saying there? The body is rotting. That's right. This is what we would really call on Earth a death. Uh, necrosis. Necrosis is decay of the actual tissues, which is quite different than the heart stopping of somebody. And they do CPR or defibrillation, and they restart the heart. And they go, well, you died. Necrosis is death. Heart stopping and reviving the heart, that person hasn't really yet died yet. If they haven't had necrosis, they're not dead in my view. That's my view of it. But necrosis, that's death. The first death experience. And so this is important because many you'll have many of these near-death experiences... I died. I went somewhere. Well, actually, your body was not necrosed. And if you weren't necrotic, then your, then your tissues were still alive. And in fact, they could have taken and harvested your organs and put them in someone else's body, and they would keep living in, for many years, showing that those organs were not dead, those cells were not dead. You following me? Okay? This is an important distinction as well. Because there's this idea, I died and I had all these... No, you weren't dead. So whatever you experienced was still happening in your brain, in your head. 
not somewhere out there in the universe. Does that make sense? Tim? Yes? How is it God's grace when um, a loving, sweet 19-year-old dies? Did you say 10-year-old? 19-year-old. Did, did you say 10-year-old? 19. A loving, sweet 19-year-old dies? Yeah. How is that God's grace? Yes. Uh, it, it depends on the circumstances. It may not, their death, this first death experience, may not be grace, but the fact that they went to sleep and they, remember Jesus said, those who, who believe in me, even though they die, they will never die. His grace would be in the fact that they can, uh, someone can only destroy the body, they cannot destroy the soul, Matthew ten twenty eight. So his grace is in the fact that no matter what evil people do, they can't actually destroy eternal life. But if you're asking... Um, so how would a 19-year-old dying that first death experience be an act of God's grace? It may not be. It may be an act of evil against them. Then you say, well, why would God permit that? Is that what you're requesting? Yeah. Re- requ- asking? Yeah. Why would God permit it? Yes. Well, what would the options be? To intervene. For, for him to still be? Pardon? For him to still be here. For the person to still be here. Okay. Uh, And how would that happen? God would intervene in the free will of the person who killed him? Was was this murder? No. No, it was a disease. Um, An accident. An accident or uh, he just dropped on a basketball floor. Dropped on a basketball floor. Okay, so it was uh, some type of a event, uh, a, a health event. Why did that happen in this world? Why do people die in this world as first death experience? Sin. Because of sin. Sin in the world. That's right. Right. From, from God's perspective, if we look at it from God's perspective, when he created Adam and Eve in Eden, what was his intention for how long they should live? Forever. Okay. If we had a, a, a line that we could draw from our sun to planet Earth, that would be a 93 million mile line. And if every inch on that 93 million mile line, just an inch, represents a year of life, and we have 19 inches for someone who dies at age 19, and we have 969 inches from someone who dies at Methuselah's age, 969, on a 93 million mile line or rope or stick, is there a significant difference between 19 inches and 969 inches on a 93 million mile rope or line? <laughs> and 93 million miles is still finite. God's intention for human beings is eternal life. From God's perspective, if someone dies at 19 or 969, they all die young. All die young. That's God's perspective. Our perspective is 19, uh, 80, 90, 101. Boy, that was a really long life. Not from God's perspective, it wasn't. It was a short life. The issue is, did the person have a saving relationship with Jesus Christ? And if they did, they have eternal life, and they will sleep briefly, but then they'll rise again for eternal life. So, you know, I think our heavenly perspective can give us perspective on that when we when we ask about the uh why does god permit though these these types of things to happen i think it's the law of liberty being worked out also do we trust him with outcomes in my book the god-shaped heart or is the god-shaped brain i can't remember which book the story is in it's one of those two books but the story is told i think it might be the god-shaped brain uh the story is told and it's a true story of a young boy who, uh, and it was told to me by uh, my pastor, who was uh, on the scene in first-hand account. Uh, in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan, back in the 1950s, they didn't have 911, and they didn't have life force helicopters, and so forth and so on. And uh, they lived on a farm, and their neighbor had a, uh, had a son who was uh, around five years of age, and he was an unruly boy, always, always kind of not listening and not following instructions, and they told him repeatedly, don't play on the farm equipment because it's dangerous, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. 
And one day my friend, uh, my pastor, was out in the field and he got an emergent call uh, to come to the neighbors because this boy had been injured playing on the farm equipment. And, and they did the only thing they knew how to do is they had a prayer circle around the boy and they asked the Lord to heal the boy because it was, it was too far to get him to any type of a hospital, which is hours and hours away. And my, my friend was in the prayer circle, and he remembered as that went around the prayer circle, uh, everybody prayed, Lord, we know you can heal this boy. If it's your will, restore this boy to health. Your will be done. Until they got to the mother, and the mother prayed, Lord, I don't care what your will is. If you don't heal, heal my boy, I will never speak to you again. <laughs> now, uh, now, we don't know what the Lord did. I can only tell you what actually happened. The history of what happened is the boy survived his injuries. Now, we don't have the word from the Lord that the Lord miraculously healed him or not. But the boy survived. And the boy went on to be a bane on that family, constantly in trouble, truant in school, fights, um, got in adolescence, got into alcohol and drugs, uh, got into all types of petty thefts, stole from his parents to pay for his drugs, stole from the neighbors, in and out of jail, and eventually dies at age 45 of an overdose. That's the history of his life. Now, again, we don't have any word from the Lord on whether he intervened or not. But it gives a great opportunity to answer the question on both sides. Perhaps the Lord knew the future, and perhaps if the mother would have said, I trust you, Lord, your will be done, perhaps the boy falls asleep right then. Perhaps he then he doesn't end up torturing his own life and the lives of many people in the community. Perhaps the mother uh, was serious, and God knew that if he didn't intervene at this point, he was going to lose this mother who who would be in heaven if he if he let the uh, let the boy live. And so God intervened and let the boy live, and the boy went on to to live his life to have all these problems. I don't know the answer, but I think it gives insight that when someone dies, we don't know the future. Did God? allow this to happen at this point to prevent some tragedy in that individual's life later, maybe a kidnapping, uh, a, some, uh, some event that would make their life horrible, and they didn't have to go through it. Uh, it, was an, it he permitted it. He didn't cause it, but he permitted it. I, I don't know the answer, but I can tell you when we get to heaven, you'll get an answer, and you're going to go, you know what, if I could have stood in God's throne and made decisions for my life that God made, with all the knowledge that God has, I wouldn't have made a decision one different than he made. And, and that, I can tell you, is the truth, because God is always doing what's good for his people. Yeah. Always. Amen. Amen. Let's close with prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your love. We thank you for the fact that you are completely trustworthy. And yes, there are often times things that happen on this planet we don't fully understand, like Job didn't fully understand what was happening to him. But one thing we can be certain of is that you are trustworthy. And we put our trust in you, and we look forward to the day that you will answer all of our questions. We pray in your holy name. Amen.